Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I've brought a special friend for our sermon today. And uh, in a short bit, I'll introduce this very special fish to you. Um, so stay tuned. I also have uh, additional special guests that are with me this weekend. I'm really grateful that my entire family uh, were able to join me for services here at Willow. Um, so thank you for welcoming them to me. Uh, I thought I would introduce my children's names to you. Because in knowing their names, you'll have a, a good understanding of kind of my worldview or theology. For my wife and I, we wanted our children to have both biblical names, but with pop culture references. Uh, meaning that we wanted them to love the word of God, but to also take to heart this call to be light and salt to the world. So for example, our 21-year-old daughter, her name is Jubilee. Now, Jubilee comes from the Old Testament in the book of Leviticus, where every 50 years, God calls for shalom and flourishing and justice, eases all debt in the land. Now, Jubilee, from a cultural perspective, is a character from the X-Men. Okay, um, wrong crowd. Um. Now, our second daughter, her name is Trinity. God's identity as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, uh, children, don't watch this film without your parents' permission, but is also a character from a film called The Matrix. And then lastly, my son, his name is my favorite. His name is Jedi. <laughs> now, Jedi comes from Solomon's Hebrew name, which is Jedidiah, and it means the chosen one, the chosen beloved. Every single week, even though my son is 16 years old and is six foot one, I love reminding my son, I'm your father. <laughs> now, whenever I share my son's name, inevitably, I have a couple like younger men rush the stage after the sermon and they'll say, Pastor Eugene, how did you convince your wife to name your son Jedi? Teach me, Oyota. <laughs> so I thought I would just briefly share with you how I was able to trick, I mean convince, my wife to name our son Jedi. When we found out we were having a son, uh, this was a name that I wanted to, to, to name our son ever since I was in college before I even met my wife. And so when we found out we were having a son, I went to my wife and I said, Minhee, I love you. That's not the trick. Minhee, I love you. I would like to name our son Jedi. She looked at me and she said, no. <laughs> now, being a true Star Wars fan, a true Star Wars believer, I went up to her and I said, we will name our son Jedi. She said, no. <laughs> the force is strong with her. And so we actually fought about this because names are really important. So eight months into her pregnancy, I finally came to my senses, went to her, and I said, Minhi, I'm so sorry. It's only fair, only right, only just that you, the mother of this child, you, you're the one carrying this baby in your body. You should choose our son's name. 
She smiled. She was so happy. So I then said, here's your choice. <laughs> it's Jedi or Frodo. One of these two. You choose. Well, I'm so grateful that she did not choose Frodo Cho. Because let's be honest, that sounds wrong. <laughs> Friends, in the history of the church and in certain traditions, as I've shared with you before, when they read the scripture, whether it's one person or communal, we encourage people to rise to their feet. So as you're able, whether you're here in the foyer or watching online, I want to invite you right now. Let's rise to our feet out of reverence for God's word. And today, as we begin this new series on Psalms entitled, All the Things, I want to invite all of us together in one voice. We're going to read Psalm 121 together. Let's begin. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Amen. Please have a seat. And join me in a prayer. God, thank you again so much for the gift that it is to study your word. The gift that it is to lift up songs and prayers and hymns to you. God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. And all God's people said, amen. My task today is to give you an overview of the book of Psalms. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be studying the book of Psalms until every single week. We're going to have a phenomenal teacher coming and basically taking one psalm and diving into it. Now, today, my task, my privilege is to give you an overview. And my prayer is not only do we grow in information, but we're convicted, inspired, transformed by the Holy Spirit, ultimately to grow deep in our worship as followers of Jesus Christ. Now, in order to do that, I believe that what's helpful for us is to give each of us a context, some background information about the book of Psalms. Now, I want to warn you, some of it is very informational. It's very academic or intellectual, but it's good for us to love the Lord with all of our heart, soul, body, and also our mind. And so I want to give you that information. Now, as we study Psalms, it begins with this Hebrew word called Tehillim. Now, Tehillim means praises. 
The literal translation of Tehillim means the plucking of strings. So right from the get-go, we know that the book of Psalms involves praises, songs, instruments. The word Psalms comes not from Tehillim, but from the Greek translation of the Hebrew word. And the Greek word is a word called Psalmoi. And that's where Psalms comes from. So what is Psalms? The book of Psalms is a compilation, a gathering, a collection of beautiful poems, hymns, and prayers. That's what the book of Psalms is. Now, it happens to be, in my opinion, and according to many scholars, the most widely read book in the scripture. Now, many of you probably don't even know this, but you probably have certain passages, verses from Psalms in your mind or in your heart. And the reason why is because many of the worship songs that we sing come from Psalms. Even this morning, as the worship team beautifully led us into worship, I noticed that there were numerous songs that were lifted from the book of Psalms. It's also possible that if you're like me, there are certain prayers that we pray in good moments, in difficult moments, that come from the book of Psalms. Now, I'll share with you why. The book of Psalms is the most widely read because as we look to these poems, sing these hymns, and lift these prayers, when we do it again and again and again, what happens is that it begins to form and take root in our own life. And so as a result, when we're going through difficult moments, out of nowhere, these prayers come out of our hearts and minds. And that's a good thing. It's an example of us digesting the Word of God into our lives so it's not just something that we listen to once a week, but it's something that lives within us that guides us as a lamp unto our feet. I'll give you an example. Psalm 19.1, whenever I'm hiking, I just lift up the words from Psalm 19.1 that says, The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. Or how about Psalm 27.1? It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? I say that prayer whenever I'm struggling with fear in my life. Psalm 46.1 says, God you are my refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. And next Sunday, you're going to be reading Psalm 23. And it begins with these very well-known words that simply say, The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. It's one of the reasons why Psalms happens to be the most widely read book in the Scripture. Now, in addition to it being the most widely read, in my opinion, it also happens to be one of the most unique, if not the most unique books in the Bible. Here's why. It happens to be the most quoted in the New Testament. 
So as we're reading the New Testament, there are several instances, in fact, 360 times where the Old Testament is referenced in New Testament stories and teachings. Of those 360 times, 112 are from the book of Psalms. It also happens to be the largest or the longest book in the Bible. Specifically, there are 150 chapters in the book of Psalms. Now, stay with me. Originally, there were five books. And in the editing and the bringing together through the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, these five books were brought together to constitute the book of Psalms. The reason why they did that is because they were all very similar in their themes of poems and hymns and prayers. So 150 chapters, but we should note there's an asterisk in the longest or the largest. It's by far the largest in terms of chapters and verses, but if you were to count words, the longest book in the Bible is not Psalms. It happens to be another book in the Old Testament called Jeremiah. Now, it also contains in the Bible the longest chapter of the Bible in Psalm 119. Simultaneously, it contains the shortest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 117, which is just two verses. If you and your spouse or a friend, if you want to have a contest memorizing one chapter, what you want to do is tell that person, you memorize Psalm 119, I'll memorize Psalm 117. Let's see who wins and loves Jesus more. Okay? Now, in Psalm 117, if you memorize praise the Lord, you've memorized 20% of those two verses. Just an FYI. It's also very unique because it has multiple authors. There's only two books in the Bible that is written by multiple authors. The other being Proverbs and the second being here in the book of Psalms. Now, I'll give you an example. David is probably the most well-known of the author in Psalms. Now, scholars debate exactly how many of the Psalms were written by David, but they speculate that it was probably 73 to 75. So about half of the chapters of the Psalms were written by David. Twelve of them were written by a priest by the name of Asaph. There was a, a team of musicians and composers named the Sons of Quran, and they wrote ten of the Psalms together. Solomon wrote two, and scholars believe that even Moses wrote one of the Psalms at Psalm 90. Now, one last thing, interesting background of Psalms, is the word Selah. Now, if you've read Psalms, it's quite possible that as you're studying and reading Psalms out of nowhere, this word Selah just pops out near the end of that Psalm. Now, what does that mean? Over the years as a pastor, I've had numerous people ask me the question, what is it and why is it in the Psalms? Now, the word Selah shows up 74 times in the Bible and only in the Old Testament. It shows up 71 times in the book of Psalms 
And the three other instances is in the book of Habakkuk in the Old Testament. Now, what does Selah mean? If you were to ask 10 theologians, 10 biblical scholars, what they believe Selah means, it's quite likely you're going to hear five or six different answers. The answer is we don't quite know. It's somewhat mysterious what it means. People believe that it means some sort of a, a sort of a, a musical direction, a pause, a interlude, a moment of silence. Your guess is as good as mine, but I do like one of the modern understandings of Selah, which means that in the midst of singing, in the midst of praying, in the midst of whatever we're doing, it's instruction to the person who's doing that very act to pause. Slow down and to look to God. To focus our hearts and our eyes on Him. And this is really important because even as we're doing religious things, if we're not careful, we'll end up just simply doing religious things. It's a reminder for us that in all that we do, but especially in our poems, our hymns, and our prayers, to focus our eyes on him. Now stay with me. We're almost done with the introduction. One of the reasons why, I said almost done, not done, okay? One of the reasons why I think humans, you and I, we gravitate towards Psalms is that as we read it, there's something in that we read that resonates with us. We understand it has a level of human empathy, for example. Now, if you were to categorize all the Psalms, it would likely fit into seven of these categories. I'm going to go through them very quickly because we don't have the time. There is a wisdom Psalm, which is simply Psalm that gives us guidance and direction. Right? Many instances in our life, we're asking God, show me the that's an example of a wisdom psalm. There's a royal psalm. It speaks about the messianic coming of Jesus, the future Messiah, who will usher in the kingdom of God. There's a lament psalm. Now, to be honest, this is one of my favorite psalms. Because I want to know that in my sadness, in my depression, in my discouragement, in my hardship, in my chaos that God can meet me in those areas. And that's called a lament psalm. Many instances we hear the prayers and the songs of King David where he is weeping before the Lord and God meets him there. The fourth example, it's a scary word, it's called an imprecatory psalm. It's a fancy word of saying that God's judgment, that we're asking for God's judgment. An example of God's judgment is when you're going through a hard time, as David goes through in the Psalms. He says, these are my enemies. Where is your righteous anger, O God? I need your indignation. I need your judgment on that person. It may not sound the most Christ-like, but it's very raw. 
It's very honest. It's very vulnerable. Now, I don't know about you, but there are instances when I'm going through a difficult time, when I feel like someone has wronged me, when someone sends me a nasty email from me after a sermon, I say, God, I pray that you would destroy that person's computer. I say those prayers. Honestly, I repent afterwards, but that's an example of an imprecatory psalm. Don't send those emails. So here's the fifth one, Thanksgiving psalm. Very self-explanatory. Pilgrimage is an example of psalms, prayer songs, that the Jewish people sang during certain festivals on their way to these feasts. And then lastly, it's an enthronement song. The last song that we sang, shout to the Lord. That's an example of an enthronement song that sings about God's glory, God's majesty, that God And God alone is Lord. Now, having said that, you're going to be diving into respective chapters. I look forward to coming back two more times to join in on the study. But I think there are three big themes throughout the book of Psalms that I want to remind you of to help connect the dots over this entire series. Here's the first one, and it's very important. It's God reminding us that he is a personal God, that Jesus is Emmanuel. Now, what does this mean? If you read the beginning of the Old Testament, whether we like to say this or not, It feels like we have an understanding of a God who's big and cosmic. We're nothing in comparison. The danger of this theology is that while part of it is true, it feels like God is distant. He's not accessible. He's not someone that we can connect with. The book of Psalms is a game changer because we are learning that God is inside me, with me, for me, next to me, beside me. And there's a certain intimacy, a certain personal connection that we learn through these prayers, hymns, and songs. I'll give you an example. For example, when you read the scripture, Psalm 139, verse 13, 14 says these words. For you, God, created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. You see how intimate and personal that song in that psalm reminds us of. Isaiah 49.1, I know it's not from the psalms, but listen to what it says. It says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. So in the beginning, the prophets of the Old Testament, it teaches us what the people of God thought. The book of Psalms reminds us how they felt. And there's a connection between the heart, a heart and the head, and vice versa. The New Testament letters teaches us what the people of God did with their hands and feet. All of it matters as followers of Jesus. Listen to this. The God of the universe is not a distant God. He's not a nebulous God. He's not an amorphous God. He's not a fictional God. The God of the universe, the one true God, he desires to be known to you. 
And he knows you by name. He calls you not strangers, not simply my creation. He calls you my sons and daughters, my beloved. I pray there's a witness in this church. That is beautiful news. So think about this. Now, I don't know about you, but I love playing basketball. In my mind, I'm a basketball legend in my mind. You guys can call me Eugene, but if you want to call me by my basketball name is AKA Asian Ankle Breaker. Also, Asian Raging Baller, I like that too. Or simply Minister Sinister also works. Now, in our family, we love playing sports and we love playing basketball. Our two themes in our family is Jesus is Lord and ball is life. And so we're playing basketball. I want you to just use your imagination. Let's just say I'm playing in Chicago in downtown playing street ball in the city. And out of nowhere, the GOAT, the greatest basketball player in history, Michael Jordan, there's no dispute. And I'm not just saying that because I'm in Chicago. But the greatest ball player, Michael Jordan, shows up at the playground, and out of nowhere, he looks at me and says, um, Asian ankle breaker. <laughs> By name, he says, Eugene, I see you. I got you. Let's ball. You and me, two on two, against anyone. Now, clearly, you don't believe in the veracity of the story. You know that it's fictional. He doesn't know me. But can you believe how crazy it would be if the greatest basketball player in history showed up and called me by name? Now, I love Michael Jordan, greatest ball player, but he's also merely human. What I'm saying is this. The God of the cosmos of the universe, who created the heavens and the earth, the stars, everything that we know to be in the universe, this God says, I see you, and I call you by name. It's beautiful and profound. If you're visiting church for the very first time, or you've been going to church for many years, I pray that simple statement that the God of the universe is a personal God to you. I pray that it would give you goosebumps, compel each of us to grow as followers of Jesus. And let me give you another illustration just to really drive it home. I want to say that this is not my original illustration. I read about this in a book by an author named Philip Yancey, and I want to adapt it for the purposes of today's sermon. Now, let's just say that this fish is not a random fish. It's a fish that has deep meaning to me. I love this fish. I don't just call it a fish. I've chosen to give it a name. I call it Bubbles. In my desire for Bubbles to flourish, to grow, I wanted to know that this fish doesn't exist by itself. It has a purpose and a plan. That there's a creator, a human being, who desires to help this fish flourish. And so as a result, I've created this beautiful fishbowl, 
placed these sedimentary rocks with minerals. I have no idea what that means, but I placed these sedimentary rocks with minerals on the bottom. This beautiful organic shrub inside. <laughs> but every time I approach the fish, it turns away. It looks the other direction. Bubbles? Bubbles. Bubbles? Wrong pet. Bubbles. And it goes the other way. But I do more. I want this fish bubbles to flourish. So I place this beautiful house. It doesn't acknowledge me. It simply hides. Now, all I want to do is to tell bubbles that it's known, that it's loved. That is created for a purpose. And I'm racking my brains. How do I convey to bubbles that that's the only desire that I have? But instead, it's only gripped by fear and terror. And it just keeps hiding. So what can I do? Well, there's only one thing that I can do to truly convey to truly convince this fish of my desire to love and to see it flourish, I realize that the only thing I can do is what? I would have to become fish and enter this world. I don't know about you. That's mind-blowing. Some of us, we've heard the Christmas story so much that we don't understand how crazy the Christmas story is that the God of the universe chooses to enter into the human world to become one of us, to show us the way, to walk with us, to teach us, to eat with us, to forgive us, and ultimately to go to the cross. Friends, our God is a personal God. And I'm so grateful that Jesus is Emmanuel. So if our God is a personal God, then there's more good news is that we can bring our full selves to God. Now, let's just be honest. The reality is social conditioning is such that we're tempted to put on a presentation to other people. Maybe even this morning you said to yourself, maybe to your spouse, maybe to your siblings, maybe to your children, hey, put on your best presentation. Don't embarrass me. Maybe as a result, it influences the way that we do Christian church community as well. I'm not suggesting that right now you should stand up and tell the entire congregation everything that you're going through, but there needs to be a culture in every church that believes that we worship a personal God 
and that God welcomes our authentic, true, real, raw, vulnerable self into the house of God. And if God welcomes all of us, wherever and however we are, then I pray that our friendships, our relationships, our section groups reflect that honesty as well. So what does that mean? It means that this notion or idea that I have to have it all together before I enter into a relationship with God, it's false teaching. Remember I gave you the analogy a couple months ago about the nonsensical notion of someone who's about to enter a shower thinking, nope, I don't want to enter the shower. Let me first get clean before entering the shower. That's what we mean. God welcomes sinners. And I'm a sinner. I don't want to burst your bubble, but I believe every single person here, we're broken and fallen in some way, and the good news is that God knows it, everything about you, and he welcomes you into his presence. The good news is that God welcomes and is able to meet you and I in our mess, our fears, our worries, our anxieties, our anger, our doubts, our highest moments, our lowest moments. There is no mess that God is not able to enter and work within your life. Listen to this prayer in Psalm 40, verse 17, that was adapted into a song. It says, and me, I'm a mess. I'm nothing and have nothing. Make something of me. You can do it. You've got what it takes. But God, don't put it off. What a honest prayer and a song. Can you imagine walking around this week just praying and singing that song, I'm a mess. I'm a mess, but God welcomes me into his presence. I love that beautiful truth. Here's the third thing, and it's very important. It's this theme that God alone is worthy of worship. Now listen, I truly believe that in the church, we typically stay here. And those are good things to pursue. But if we don't also pursue and are mindful of this truth that God alone is God, that God alone is worthy of our worship, then if we're not careful, the temptation is that it really becomes about me, a personal God for me, my personal church, my personal section group, my personal quiet time, and the list goes on. And we realize that God welcomes us and I don't want to knock emotions and feelings because God sees it. He meets us there. But there's a difference between being sensitive to our emotions and being enslaved by our emotions. See, the temptation is me, we're the central thing, and God is a smaller little planet that orbits around us. That's why we have to always be reminded that our hymns, our prayers, our songs, our psalms, that we're reminded that is ultimately about God, about Jesus Christ. You see, in the psalms, you're going to learn 
that it's not just about you and what you're going through. But as God meets you there, God begins to divulge and reveal more of his heart and his character to you. And we begin to fall in love more and more at the majesty, at the compassion, at the mercy, at the glory of God. And even as we're going through difficult challenges in our life, we begin to give glory to God. We begin to give witness to God's majesty and sovereignty. We begin to lift our eyes, not just on our predicaments, not just on our situations, but we begin to focus and lift our eyes on God. And it makes us grow deeper in worship of Him. Here are some examples. In Psalm chapter 16, verse 5, we learn that God is my portion. Lord, you alone are my portion and my cup. You make my lot secure. In Psalm 28, 7, we learn that God is my strength. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and helps me. My heart leaps for joy, and with my song, I praise him. Psalm 27, 1, we learn that God is my salvation. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is my stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Here's one more. We learn in Psalm 18, verse 2, that God is my rock. The Lord is my rock. My fortress and my deliverer, my God is my rock in whom I take refuge. See, God meets you in your mess, in my mess, wherever we are. But the beautiful thing is that we begin to learn about who God is. Friends, would you just rise to your feet as you're able? And I want to invite you again to open up your hands, your palms. And we're going to close soon with a benediction, a prayer over you. I cannot imagine a better word to give you as we end 2019 together. And as we begin a new year, as we begin a new decade, I can't imagine speaking more important truth than these words. God loves you. God loves you. And he loves us so much. As crazy as this story is, he enters into our lives and becomes one of us so that you would have a glimpse of the profoundness of his love. And so that in your life, there's a groundswell, a growing of songs, of hymns, of prayers as we worship God. So with your hands open to receive this benediction, let me read for you once more. Let me pray over you Psalm 121 again. Brothers and sisters, we lift up our eyes to the mountains. Where does our help come from? 
Our help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you, me, us, will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's give the Lord a praise offering. Friends, God bless you. Happy New Year. We'll see you next week.